Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, please welcome Justin Hawking. Thanks, Noel, and thanks to Steve and everyone that um, here at Skylight Books. It's a beautiful bookstore. It's really great to be here, and thank you all for coming and being here tonight. It's really great to see some friendly faces in the audience and some old friends. Um, so I'm going to read a couple short chapters from the memoir. Um, it's not going to be too long, um, the reading section, and I have to give you a warning that uh, I have lingering laryngitis. Um, it seems better now, but uh, my voice may crack at a few, a few points. Um, and I was in Seattle last week and it like started to go and it was, but I have some cough drops and I have my water, so I think I'm gonna be all right. So yeah, um, so e thanks again for coming. <clears throat> this first chapter is called Ophelia Part One. Late summer 2005 and everything's underwater. The news warns us that New York City could be the next New Orleans. Flooded subways, 10,000 shattered windows. Lower Manhattan as the new American Venice. Streets turned into canals, the seafloor studded with broken glass. The storms spin up from the gulf in alphabetical order. Katrina, Lee, Maria, Nate. None make it very far north, not until mid-September, when Hurricane Ophelia ravages the Carolina coast, floods the Outer Banks with a foot of rain, and wreaks $70 million worth of damage. On September 16th, Ophelia arrives off the coast of New York. From far above, she's your typical hurricane, a crown of cotton thorns. But down below, she thrashes the surface of the sea, capsizes ships in her self-destructive fury. Like so many of us new to the city, she wants everyone to remember her name. But even she can't handle the pressure, can't make it here in New York. And just days later, Ophelia drowns herself in the North Sea. Her suicide's wake sends undulations of raw energy back towards Gotham. Smoothed out by hundreds of travel miles, this energy arrives in the form of perfectly shaped swells at Long Beach, Lido, Montauk, and the Rockaways. Places that I watch obsessively via satellite. Curled over my computer at 6 a.m. in my Brooklyn apartment, I'm tracking the storm, reading the reports, chest-to-head high swells with 16-second intervals, excellent conditions, go surf now, when an incoming text sparks my cell phone. Waves look perfect, the message reads. We're ditching work. You coming? It's from my friend Don, who despite working 70-hour weeks in the fashion industry, is a Texas-bred tomboy. She surfs any chance she gets, in any conditions, with a kind of badass exuberance that I admire. 
Having already called in sick, I step into surf trunks, load up my board, and swing by Dawn's apartment. She and Tegan are waiting on the curb in shorts, flip-flops, and hooded sweatshirts, their surfboards propped against a brick wall lashed with silver and blue torrents of graffiti. We drive east through Bushwick's drab cement grid, then arc over Maspeth Creek and English Kills, tributaries of Newtown Creek, a Superfund site spiked with 10 million gallons of spilled oil. These ruined waterways like New York City's trackmark veins after a century-long overdose. Brooklyn spits us out into Queens, past center block car washes and fast food joints and a cluster of graveyards. Linden Hill, Mount Olivet, Lutheran, and St. John, the only shards of green space for miles. Singing along with Tegan's collection of Smith songs, we angle down into Woodhaven and Ozone Park under crumbling subway trestles, past Indian restaurants and windowless strip clubs and cell phone stores, and on through Howard Beach's row rows of 70s-era Italian banquet halls and seafood restaurants, all of it a blur in the borough's slow southward tilt to the coast. We get the first tangy smack of salt water on the long bridge over Jamaica Bay. It's here that the pace of our conversation picks up, echoing our pulses as we approach the sea. Tegan is sharp-witted, a fast talker, quick, so much so that she's been dating one of our mutual friends, Adam, without me knowing it. We've dated on and off for like six months, she says. The problem with Adam is that, like most boys, he wants a girlfriend to take care of him, fix his problems, but he also wants to sleep around with everyone else in the world. I'm telling you, men are all lost. I can vouch for that, I say. I'm suffering multiple variations on this lost theme at the present. For one, I'm in a failing long-distance relationship with a soft-spoken girl named Carissa. I want her to still love and stay faithful to me, even though she lives 2,000 miles away in Colorado. Then Dawn discusses her own chronic <clears throat> boy woes, and I follow up with my ex-girlfriend woes, until the conversation turns to work, another consistent letdown. Like me, Dawn and Tegan are sick of working such long hours, cooped up in cubes. They envy our male friends, most of whom are professional skateboarders, artists, bohemians, underemployed construction workers, overemployed drinkers. Can you imagine any of our guy friends even working in an office? Tegan wonders out loud. Justin works in an office, Don reminds her. Oh, right, Tegan says. How did that happen? I can't blame her for forgetting, for wondering. It's seriously incongruous with my career trajectory up to this point. Backpacking guide in the San Juan Mountains, summer camp counselor on Mount Hood, Oregon, skate park manager, creative writing instructor at a Colorado university. The fact that I work a corporate job on the 16th floor of a midtown high-rise both surprises me and depresses me on pretty much a daily basis. A sad facsimile of my true self up there, wearing slacks, hunched in a cubicle, compuls compulsively checking the internet surf report. Finally, the toll bridge to the Rockaway Peninsula, the long, thin jawbone of Long Island. I pay $3.50 in exchange for a horizon that's lost to me back in the city. We park and ferry our boards up cement stairs, across the wooden boardwalk, down to the beach. As we walk barefoot across morning cold sand, the sky unfurls above us, reclaiming from the city all its stolen blue bandwidth. This is what all the hype's about. Perfect, sun-shimmering sets of head-high rollers coming in smooth 16-second intervals. The ocean an endless stretch of blue-gray corduroy, 
the waves scrolling in silver and then peeling evenly into whiteness. The best swells I've ever seen anywhere. But while Don and Tegan busy themselves with surf wax and wetsuits, I stand shivering on the sand, heart racing, not sure if I'm ready for hurricane-grade surf, though by this point Ophelia has been downgraded to tropical storm status. It's here as I stare into the stirred-up maw of the Atlantic, tuned into its relentless percussive crush, that the association finally clicks. These waves are the aftermath of a storm named after English literature's most famous drowning victim. The 15th system in the worst hurricane season on record, the result of warming seas, a warming planet. I've come a long way in getting over my fear of the ocean, but I'm still new to surfing, and on a day like this, the gnawing apprehension persists. I moved to New York City with a naive sense of enthusiasm and hope, but now that I'm actually trying to get my life together in this place with so many social undercurrents and financial riptides, now I'm spooked. Come on, Justin, Don says, after I express my Shakespearean anxieties. These are the best waves of the year. She pulls up her wetsuit zipper, stretches into a deep forward bend. Armed with her surfboard, she charges down to the jetty, where the swell thunders in at its tallest, most powerful point. I hang back on the beach, where part of me wants to drop anchor, play it safe, surrender to paralysis. But there's a deeper pull at work, a stronger longing to get up and get moving, to hazard the risk and follow Don down into the churning sea. So that's the first chapter, and I'm going to skip ahead quite a bit. Thank you. Thanks. No need to. Thank you. Okay, so this chapter is called All I Need Is This Thermos, <clears throat> which some of you may um, get the uh, reference there. Steve Martin fans. Okay. In May of 2006, two and a half years after moving to New York, I fly back home to Colorado for Kyle Grodin's wedding. After arriving in Denver, I pick up a rental at Advantage Rental Car and drive to my, st my stepsister's new house, which she explains is in a rough neighborhood called Five Points, a place that was considered notorious back in the 80s, but that has since started to gentrify. As I pull up to her street, I laugh inwardly at what she considers rough. It looks like a normal urban neighborhood to me. Hell, it even has trees. And unlike my own Brooklyn street, it has no graffiti tags, rats, broken beer bottles, used condoms, or female junkies shooting smack in broad daylight. I have some trouble finding the house, so I give her a ring on my cell. Do you see me, she says. I can see you. You're in a silver car. Look behind you. I turn around and there she is, standing in front of a brick Victorian with a newly planted yard and an unpainted picket fence. A good starter home for my kid sister, the lawyer, and her firefighter husband. I feel a little stitch of sibling envy. They're probably paying less for a mortgage than I'm paying for rent back in New York. I park and undo my seatbelt, anxious to give her a hug, but for some reason I can't get the key out of the ignition. I sit there fiddling with it until she taps on my window. Hey, she mouths. What's wrong? I roll down the window. The fucking key is stuck in the ignition. That's weird, she says. 
She gets in the passenger side and tries to help me assess the problem. Two years since we've last seen each other, but we've yet to formally greet each other. No, how was your flight? Or great to see you. For some families, this would indicate distance, but for us, it shows how close we are. The fact that we can forego pleasantries and team tackle the problem at hand. If we learned anything from our pastiche family, it's this. Things go wrong, so deal with it. Our parents actually divorced long ago, so technically we're ex-step-siblings, a complicated label that we mostly ignore. So how's New York? Steph finally asks. She's messing with the gear shift, making sure it's in park. Pretty much a disaster, I say, still, still yanking on the key. She looks up from the gear shift, scans my profile. You look tired, she says. Better let me try. She takes my spot in the driver's seat. I find the owner's manual in the glove box and stand in the street next to her, straining to read in the dim street lamp glow. I'm baffled by what I discovered. If a malfunction occurs, I read out loud, the system may trap the key in the ignition cylinder to warn you that this safety feature is inoperable. The engine can be started and stopped, but the key cannot be removed until you obtain service. You have to be kidding me, I say. What genius American auto engineer came up with this one? It's after midnight, I'm tired and just want to go to bed, but now it looks like I'll have to drive the car back to advantage or wait an hour or more for a tow truck. The other option is just leaving the keys in the car overnight, which in five points doesn't seem like such a hot idea. Like some excessive punctuation marks to that thought, just then I hear the sound of brakes squealing, tires skidding on asphalt. Suddenly there's an ominous black SUV right behind us. The back door flies open, apparently kicked from the inside, revealing a kid with a gun pointed right at us. He has a blue bandana tied around his face, Wild West style, bandit style. Get the fuck out of the car, he tells me, which is confusing because I'm not actually in the car. At first I think it's a joke, some teen teenagers out pranking people with paintball guns. But the kid jumps out, puts the gun to my temple, and makes it clear that this is not a joke. The gun is a revolver, an actual revolver, with, ra with a round cylinder and six bullet chambers. It looks like an old gun, and maybe for this reason, and also the fact that I'm getting a distinct apple sense from this kid who doesn't seem like he has it in, in him to shoot anyone. It doesn't scare me as much as it probably should. I should interject here and let you know that in the previous chapter I talked about um, how I worked at a residential treatment center for adjudicated youth, and we had these two designations that we would use with the clients, apple and onion. And an apple, most, most people are kind of fall into the apple category, like where we have this kind of core of emotions, and if we get really upset, we'll kind of explode, or like we do things based on our emotions, right? And they tend to be like the good kids that make really bad decisions, whereas onions are budding sociopaths and psychopaths. So they're the people that don't really have feelings like normal people do. They just have like layers and layers that you can peel off of criminally minded thought patterns. So, so we're dealing with this Apple kid here. <clears throat> Give me all your money, he says, that old cinematic chestnut. And now here I am standing in the street, a revolver in my face, reaching into my pocket and pulling out all my money, which fortunately I have neatly folded into a faux silver money clip because it has occurred to me that in Brooklyn, a money clip could be an advantage during a mugging and that you could just slip out 
all your money without surrendering, surrendering your ID or credit cards, thus avoiding hours of phone calls to all the banks and the DMV. Yet now I'm testing out this strategy while I'm va on vacation in Denver, of all places. Now get down on the ground, he says, stuffing all my money into his own pocket. But again, none of my credit cards or my ID, by which, which by the way is still a Colorado ID, indicative of my ambivalence about being a New Yorker and my nostalgic attachment to this place where I'm about to get carjacked. Doing what I'm told, I lie down on the pavement near the rear tire. There is no fear, just a sense of audience-like numbness. It's like watching everything through one of those wide-angled, handheld cameras in a skateboard film when it gets cold-cocked by an errant skateboard and subsequently tumbles sideways onto the street and despite a cracked lens still captures street lamp shadows, voices, my own two ghostly white hands, the inflation valve on the rental car tire, the astronomical quantity of pebbles embedded in a foot-wide patch of asphalt. Then the kid forces open the car door, starts yelling at Stephanie. I told you to get out of the car and get the fuck down on the ground. But Stephanie slides across the seat, exits the passenger side, apparently making a run for it. The other carjacker, this one much larger and more menacing, is there to catch her. He drags her by the shirt, forces her to lie down next to me. So this is weird, she says. What the hell were you thinking trying to run like that? I whisper. I was trying to lie down in the yard, she says. I have a weird thing about pavement. <laughs> the whole thing strikes me as comical, as the exact kind of thing that happens when even just two members of our former family attempt a reunion. Absolute par for the course. But then a sinking realization sets in. My laptop computer is in the rental car with the original, mostly unbacked up files for the novel I've been working on for two years. A novel that fictionalizes the way that my stepsisters and I always seem to find ourselves in just this kind of situation. The younger kid is in the driver's side, sort of inexplicably taking his time with the carjacking. I cobra myself up off the pavement, just enough to see that now he's trying to get the car, the key out of the ignition. A fairly odd move for someone about to steal a car. Look, I say, you got all my money, take the car, I don't even care, just please don't take my laptop. Sure, man, okay, he says. I can detect the gears in his mind clicking as he catches himself, switches back into carjack carjacking mode and says, where the fuck is it? I explain that it's in the back seat. He jumps out and opens the back door, pitches out my laptop and my, back and my backpack, which I hug close to my body. I look over at Steph, beaming. This could actually work out really well, I say, honestly, honestly feeling cheerful. Now we don't have to call a tow truck. <laughs> but then the other guy, the more menacing one, storms up from behind and rips these items from my hands, chucks them into his ominous black SUV. And after what seems like the slowest carjacking of all time, they finally pull away, drive away with the rental car and all my belongings. Steph springs up and bolts into the house, but I stay on the ground, trying but failing to make out their license plate number, watching my own taillights fade down the darkened street. When I was a kid, one of my favorite films was The Jerk with Steve Martin, the story of a good-natured imbecile who st stumbles into a huge fortune and then loses it all. I must have watched it a half dozen times. Even 20 years later, I still quote verbatim from classic Steve Martin lines like, I'm going to buy you a diamond ring so big it'll make you puke. And you know, you can tell so much about a person from the way they live. Just looking around here, I can tell that you're a genuinely dirty person. 
In the opening scene of The Jerk, we find Steve Martin dressed in rags and living on the streets. He speaks the first lines directly into the camera. I once had wealth, power, and the love of a beautiful woman. Now I only have two things, my friends and uh, my thermos. When the larger carjacker, carjacker ripped my laptop and backpack from my hands, my own thermos fell out of the mesh side pocket and clanked into the gutter. It's a fancy new thermos that my mom bought me for Christmas, the super insulated kind that keeps a hot drink hot or a cold drink cold for like 24 hours. From my prone position on the asphalt, I slowly stand up and amble over to the thermos, my sole possession at the moment, along with an owner's manual for a 2006 Chrysler Sebring sedan. I think I'll stop there, so. Thanks, everybody. So I'm really excited to bring my new friend, Antoine Wilson, over here with us, and we're going to do a little bit of conversation. I'll scoot over here. I'll move this out of the way. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm really glad that you mentioned The Jerk because I, I'd forgotten what an important movie it was to you. And, and in fact, The Jerk was a real in, inspiration for me in yeah. writing my last novel. And um, I, I'm, you know, these, sometimes you, you, you find there are a lot of movies that you can quote, like, you know, there are people who can always quote Fletch in movies like that. And I, I, I'm more of a Monty Python guy. Yeah. But so The Jerk is not in my quotable thing, yeah. but it's a movie that I, that I watch and identify with deeply like I, I almost don't watch it as a comedy it's an amazingly profound movie yeah you know I, I is your mic on hello okay oh, now there we on. go um so i just finished reading antoine's novel panorama city which you guys have to read it is so good it is so outrageously funny and absurd and humane and just huge-hearted i love the book and the whole time i was reading i was like i was thinking like what are some of your inspirations because my we're going to kind of get to it my inspirations are yeah. Melville, Melville in a big way, but it's, it's so great to hear that it was the, the jerk, jerk was is a big one, one. Yeah, I mean, I like you know my elevator pitch is that it's Gilead meets the jerk, um, but uh, uh, Gilead, yeah, that, right, right, right. that Venn diagram looks like this. Like you just don't you don't get a lot of yeah uh, buyers with that one. But in fact, um, <laughs> Don Quixote was the book that got me going on that novel, and and I tried to write a Don Quixote ish book that turned out not to be working and it slipped into more of a candide mode in terms of like the the sort of old lit influences and that kind of t feel like it ended up candide-ish yeah yeah but i don't i feel like candide doesn't have the same kind of heart that you No, candide i mean voltaire is just ruthless with his characters yeah. and i just couldn't i don't for whatever reason i couldn't do it to my characters but yeah. um but let's talk about your book okay. because my book came out like years ago and yours is is fresh hot but you guys have to read it fantastic promise Panorama um, City. His book is fantastic, and I even there's even something from me on the back of it or front of it somewhere, and um, that's because I liked it so much. Uh, carjacked in Denver while living in New York. Um, <laughs> the irony. Bring yes, brings to mind the, this sort of geographic uh, odd disjunct thing that seems to happen to you. So you go to New York. 
because you have uh, published a an anthology of skate stories or skate right. skate related writing stuff. by like so so you're gonna yes yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna launch your literary career you leave your girlfriend behind and it's like time to go be the the literary tyro in new york and instead uh you you learn to surf yeah and well, and in in the rockaways yeah well it's funny because i i grew up I actually grew up not far from here in San Diego, and we lived at La Jolla for like a summer, which was great, but then my father got remarried, and my stepmother had horses, so we had to move way inland into the total armpit of San Diego, and El Cajon, yes, I think. Um, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, uh, Fresno. Okay, yeah. So um, I always kind of aspired to, to surf, and I started to get into it, but I had some bad experiences at a as a kid where I got, like, nailed by a guy that's now my age on a longboard. Um, and the guy had to carry me out of the water when I was, like, 12. Yeah. And uh, so I just had some bad experiences, and skateboarding just came really naturally to me, and I became I just I'm still, still really involved in it, and I love it. And, um, but when I moved to New York... Um, being from Colorado and California, uh, that city was so overwhelming to me, um, just on like an aesthetic and emotional level when I first got there because there's so little open space, right? Um, I mean, I love the city and I wish I could spend more time there, but at first I was just so, such a neophyte and um, just, yeah, and so the one place that I found open space was at the beach, which I totally fell in love with. Rockaway Beach and Montauk and there's all these lo and you know it's funny the funny thing about New York is that like half the people that live there don't even realize that they're like near the water right I mean <laughs> right. so um, I think that I when I one of the first times that I visited I saw this guy get out of the the, the um, subway and he had a surfboard tucked under his arm and I was like oh I gotta move here you know that was like part of the part of the impetus, because I, I this is something that I wanted to do, and then um, my dear friend Ish, who's here in the audience with us, and I'm probably going to embarrass, um, was kind enough to, like, take me surfing in New York, and and so it was it was just, a, and I, and I, there's such a great, there's like a whole subculture there that most people don't think about, like surfing culture, and I just met such, so many amazing people, and it really sustained me through some, some challenging times. How, how doable is it to take the subway to actually go surfing? I mean, it's obviously better if you have a car. Yeah, and I, I fortunately had a truck, so I would drive quite a bit, but we did sometimes take the A train. It's totally doable. I mean, wow. especially if you go, uh, uh, if you go, like, if you try and go get on the, tr like, the L train at, like, from, from Brooklyn at, like, eight in the morning, you're not going to get anywhere with a surfboard, but if you go at, like, a slightly off time, like, really early or a little bit later, it's, it's, it's great. And did you surf year-round, like, winter? I, I'm just not that rugged. It's cold. Yeah, um, although I surf in Oregon now, which in the summer is just as cold as it is in the winter, and, yeah. um, and uh, so mostly just in the summer. I wish, with the benefit of hindsight, it, there's, I would have surfed year-round, because it's really good in the fall and the winter. And the wetsuits are getting better every year. Yeah. 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 I actually was, uh, there was a point in year 2000 where I was potentially going to go live in Eastport, Maine for a year. And the first thing I did was research, like, uh, they had some electric wetsuits just coming out then. And, um, electric and, wetsuits. Yeah, they have, like, an electric pack in them. And, uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to go surf Halifax, or, you know, or what. So well, I, I've, never, I've never done this, this snowy surf session, but... Uh, it's tempting. Yeah. So, yeah. Antoine, what about you? Did you 
You grew up in this in LA, right? From uh, junior high onward. I'm from Montreal originally, and then um, lived in Central California for four years in Madeira, worse than Fresno, um, better than Fresno, worse than Fresno. Oh, so Madeira is the setting in your book. So yeah, it's a real place. I didn't realize it's it was a, real a real place. place. It's the geographic center of California, and um, that's about it. But the uh, then, then Santa Monica, and uh, we did a year in Saudi Arabia, and then back to Santa Monica. So from junior high on, I grew up in Santa Monica, and did a little bit of uh, you know the old boogie boarding, body surfing stuff. Uh, tried to surf when I was a kid, and I was terrible at it. And then uh, right after college, picked it up, and have been sort of like a teenager. Have had teenagers' enthusiasm for it ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that's what's great about getting it too. When you're like a little older, you just a lot of people are sort of. Ta tapering off and we're like more enthusiastic than ever yeah yeah, well, yeah with yeah. less time though that's <laughs> true the time the time constraints but you but more <clears throat> more freedom to get choose your own boards and yeah. stuff you don't just have to like beg your parents for a yeah a, a board or for christmas or something so yeah and um you you mentioned in the book that there's an area so i've never been over there the area in the rockaways they have designated surf area uh -huh. between jetties yeah what happens if you go surf other jetties or is it well they're opening it up to some other jetties too okay but there's it's funny it's, like you get a ticket uh it's such there's like these people with whistles that will come over and like start whistling and be like get out of there yeah. it's like it's such a funny kind of east coast phenomenon you know like th there are lifeguards and they're like Everything's kind of regimented, and yeah. I can. I, I, they yeah. do that in Florida too, I think. Yeah, but but there's more and more people surf more spots in Rockaway and, and Long Beach. Where was that Quicksilver contest? That was Long Beach, right? Yeah. That was an insane error. Kelly uh, Slater pulled. Yeah. This is you guys didn't come to hear us talk about um, just surfing, um, but <laughs> well, we can we can loop back around to surfing a bit more. But I, let's bring it to to, to writing yeah. and maybe slowly transitioning. What sort of connections do you do you feel between um, your surfing slash skating life and your writing life? Are they t are they just two separate compartments? Do you feel like you have to pull them together? Do they flow together naturally? I think that they're really separate in some ways, but then there's also a lot of connections. And I think, like, you know, just like surfing, you're in, like, a real kind of deep conversation with this pretty powerful natural force. And I, you know, I think I actually sort of consider myself kind of a nature writer. Oh, yeah. At the same time that I don't think that I would want to be pegged with that, that term because people don't... It's sort of a maligned genre and people think of nature writing as just kind of like flowery um, sort of utopian prose about how great nature is um, but that's one reason I actually love Moby Dick um, because I think it shows also the very dark side of nature yeah um, so there's that and then with I don't know I just feel like growing up skateboarding it did have some influence on me as a writer and um, there's something there's something about the obsessive persistence that it takes to like write a sentence. Yeah. There's the same way as like learning a trick on a and, and there's like this there's like a, a tolerance for failure and like falling down constantly, you know, that I think is perfectly suited for the writing life. <laughs> which entails so much, you know, trial and error and failure and sometimes mid sentence. Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes after something's already been written and yeah, attempting to put it out in the world. Um, so uh, okay, skate skating wise, you uh, you're would you say you're a good skater? I would say that I was a great skater in like 2001. Great skater. Well, pretty good. Okay. 
uh, I was never like pro or anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, and now I'm just like a like sort of like uh, rickety old man. Old guy. But I still have so much fun with it. So you do that? You can do like kick flips and uh, maybe if I try to like tw twenty times. But mostly you're, I like you like the bowls. in Oregon. Yeah, we have all these huge, really, really beautiful like sculptural skate parks, and there's some there's some here now too, like in Venice. And but I, I just like to get in there and cruise around. Do your Bertelman moves. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the Bertelman, Bertelman in there in the right. book at one point, and I and it made me think uh, a lot of people when they write about there's a sort of voice that comes into um, a lot of uh, writers writing about surfing outside of surf magazines and things like that, and it's the sort of literary writer who is, leads off with. I'm I'm a, I'm a kook, or I used to be a better surfer, or I'm sort of on the the way to giving it up, or you know, putting the focus on somebody else that they're surfing with. And um, a, a classic example is playing Doc's Games by Bill Finnegan, which is a yeah, we great essay from the New Yorker two-parter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you know he's sort of given up giving up surfing as you know, and and uh, even Daniel Dwayne's book is, has a, some of that to it. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that the beginning chapter of this book, you started off with a, an episode where you're intimidated and you're sort of an, a neophyte. And, um, and I thought, okay, that fits into the tradition. But then I came across this, this Bertelman thing with skating and I thought, oh, how nice to see somebody being not, you know, not falsely modest about his, his thing. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it, as far as the nature writing, I feel like that comes out not just in your descriptions of, of the waves, which are uh, really fantastic and have great variety to them and are very visual, but also your descriptions, even in that first section of New York City and the various layers, uh, uh, both visual and historic, as, as you cross and make your way out to the water, um, I, I feel like that's part and parcel with being a nature writer. Today's nature writers, I think, have to have to write about super fun sites. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. part of the like the urban and the natural world kind of colliding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What well, I'm curious to hear uh, from you about this too. Do you think that because like your book, neither of your books have had anything to do with yeah. surfing or your involvement in that. But do you think that there's kind of a connection for you? Um, for me, surfing is a place that I, I can go to and um, I think you talked about meditation. You say meditation and water are wedded forever once he gets hooked on surfing. And um, so surfing for me has this similar uh, aspect, similar to maybe a really good yoga, um, what do they call it, a session? Yoga time? Mm -hmm. um, because you spend so much of your energy focused you know, solely in yoga on your body and surfing, there's all this subconscious stuff going, just holding your body in the water. And then if, um, if the waves are big or if there, there's, there are lulls or something, you're watching that horizon all the time and you're sort of sensing the weather, you're, you know, you've got some marine life. And then oftentimes, especially down here, there are a lot of other surfers around. Mm. So you can sometimes be engaged in a kind of Darwinian, uh, you know, checking each other out make you know like is this you know if you're sitting next to some guy in the water and there are waves coming you've are you already know you're already taking in all this data about this guy is he going to go and if he does go is he going to kook it and if i know he's going to kook it then i know i can paddle for the same wave 
you know, if he goes off the, if he doesn't take that first wave, then he's not going to get the next one. Because um, I'm going to surf it. next to me, and you would know that you could have all the waves. Because I'm pr pretty, pretty certain that I'm going to kick it. Well, we're on different different kinds of boards. You'd be sitting a little further outside. Um, anyhow, there, there's just a, what I'm saying is there's a lot of stuff that goes uh, on. Um, sort of subconsciously in the water that, that captures and takes up all of your attention. Mm. And writers in general are people who are paying attention all the time. And, and part of the reason that I even write is because I have to offload the stuff that has come in. So surfing's a vacation from all that. Mm. Plus, in general, my attempts to describe surfing would be akin to a heroin addict's attempts to describe just like, I yeah. am so high right now. You yeah. know, it's, it's not good. Yeah, the, I read a quote. I forget who it was. Maybe it was Daniel Dwayne in Caught Inside. Right. Like, I, I tried to stay clear. Like, there's a couple places in the book where I kind of describe the act of surfing, but I tried to mostly stay clear of that because yeah. Daniel Dwayne said, like, describing the act of surfing for people that don't surf is like saying, like, I stayed home and masturbated last night and it was great. You know, yeah. describing that. Right. There's, there's something kind of masturbatory right. about it, so. But not just stating it as a fact, but, like, being like, yeah, it really describing it. Yeah. Like on, all the awesome on, stuff you did. Yeah, all done to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, actually, this guy, Stephen Kotler, wrote a book called West of Jesus. Oh, right, Do you right. know this book? Yeah, I read it. So he did some good descriptions of surfing in yeah. there, but he had it couched in the sort of neuroscience mm -hmm. of what, what goes on in the brain as you paddle for and catch a wave. And in that sense, he was able to describe some, yeah. some really good stuff. And, and I think by not making it, dude, I caught this great wave. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think also with surfing, um, it's just a different kind of paying attention. Yeah. And uh, one of the useful things about surfing down here in Southern California is that while some people make a joke that we have no real seasons, um, you become acutely aware of the seasons if you surf because <clears throat> the direction that the swells come from changes over the course of the year from the big northwests in the winter to the stuff from the southern hemisphere in the summer and then fall and spring are mixes or messed up winds and various other things water temperature um, different type of sea life coming through you really have a sense for where you are on the calendar um, surfing in a way that you don't necessarily from just you know I'm going for a walk out here, especially this past year. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I've talked to a few people since I've been here. Uh, and again, I'm visiting from Portland where we do have seasons, and people are like, can't remember when things happen because there's no seasons. Like, Right. Like, I don't remember what season it was because it was just like one omni-season. It's hard to mark yeah. time that way. So speaking of marking time or bringing structure to something, you're... Uh, you, your obsession with Moby Dick yeah. and Melville sort of permeates this book, and it also feels like it brings some sort of structural elements to this book. Do you, can you talk yeah, about well, that? I, you know, I read, I read the chapter about the carjacking, which was at the time sort of humorous and hapless. Um, but uh, after that happened, I, ha you know, I was like struggling in my career and my relationships had fallen apart and I just had a bunch of things happening and I just went into this emotional tailspin. Um, and uh, I, I, liked, I think of Moby Dick as, and I, and I came across some critical theory um, that, uh, that compares Moby Dick, the, the narrative trajectory, to Carl, the psychologist Carl Jung's concept of the night sea journey. Um, and the night sea journey is, is like 
there are like these dark passages that we all go on um, inevitably after a loss or a trauma. Um, and so I really latched on to that concept of, of Moby Dick and I was kind of reading it during that time when I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be around anymore, um, reading it as uh, a survival story, um, the survival story of the main character, Ishmael. Everyone thinks of the book Moby Dick as Ahab chasing the white whale, and of course that's what it is, but I feel like for me I'm most interested in the main character of Ishmael who is um, put through this horrendous trial and in, is the sole survivor. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I latched onto, but then um, in terms of like on the emotional level, um, but then in terms of the aesthetics of the book, um, I, I just think it's such a thrilling multi-genre polyphonic work. And um, I, I, I really, again, we were talking about this upstairs, I tried not to just ape Melville because I can't come close to his like incandescent prose um, and I wouldn't want to, but um, I did try to let myself be inspired by what I found in that book, which is that all things are admissible um, in, in a single book. Like he does, you know, there's poetry, there's, it's a, it's a novel, but there's these long non-fiction sections, which coincidentally are the reason that many people don't fish, finish the book. Um, but there's um, these, you know, like, there's song, there's like sea shanties, like one chapter isn't just a sea shanty, and there's lists, and there's like all these like, um, he's just, it's like almost like improv improvisational jazz. Yeah. You know, so far ahead of its time, and so um, in my own modest way, I tried to kind of um, do that. You know, and I'm certainly not the first. Um, I mean, Nick Flynn, uh, in his book Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, he he loosely based that book around. Uh, he used Moby Dick as kind of a framework, and um, I, and I I just tried to do it in a um, more overt. Like I put my obsession kind of at the forefront of the book. So yeah. Um, so, uh, two questions. You can answer both or one. One is um, when you talk about that trauma of the the carjacking incident. Yeah. At the time, did you recognize it as a trauma? And uh, if not, what sort of? How long did it take you to sort of absorb and recognize that that was something that had that was really throwing you off kilter? Uh, when it was happening, it was just sort of like ridiculous and. And I wasn't particularly fearful, um, which is weird because I'm fearful about so many things. Um, but then directly after, because you kind of go into a shock when you have that, something like that happen to yeah. you. And then the minute I went inside and I tried to do my, like, all I need is this thermos bit. And my sister was, like, on the phone with the cops. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like, we just got robbed at gunpoint. And uh, I um, started tr just, like trembling you know and we both were and because we were in shock and and um uh so yeah i think i did recognize it as a trauma yeah. and um and then uh i knew i was in trouble when i started um going out to rockaway and like surf like a couple weeks after that and like surfing like at night by myself like yeah paddling way out into the break <laughs> past the break and uh when it's with the with, I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight, I, it was like, yeah, that's like I was on this kind of like literal night sea journey, right? Um, and just doing some self-destructive things. You know, so. Yeah, and night surfing is amazing. 
Um, but I, if you know what you're doing, right, and, and not, if you're with someone, and if you're not in a beach break, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so then, Moby Dick. When when did your obsession with Moby Dick begin? When did you first encounter the book? And is it sort of something that is one of many literary obsessions that then sort of can, you know, came into orbit as a result of this book? Or is it something that's, that's still lingering and that you, like, it, the, the stuff that you're working on now, are you still sort of in a Moby Dick uh, influenced? I first read it in graduate school and, and, I, and I loved it. And then I came across this book that it was like a, a Jungian interpretation of it called yeah. the Night Seat, Moby Dick as the Night Seat Journey. And that was like, I don't know, something about that just fascinated me and I latched onto that. And um, was, yeah, and I, I like collect copies of the book. It's totally nerdy, but, um, but it, I think that it's kind of unclenched its teeth a little bit, okay. the obsession. And so I, I'm really ready, like I'm so, I'm excited that this book is out and really grateful, but I'm, um, definitely moving on to different things yeah. and different influences. Um, but I feel like I've found a way to tell a story, a digressive story, like a story in digressions or that like is kind of braided in a way that allows for a lot of digressions. And I think that that totally comes from Melville. That's a very good thing to feel like you're able to do. Yeah, especially, especially in a, in a memoir. Yeah. Um, uh, so, other uh, was there other Melville, Melvilleana that you're into? I know there was a, there's a reference in this book to Marty M A R D I, which is one of Melville's worst novels, in my humble opinion, um, or maybe not worst, least successful. But it's the, the the book that made Moby Dick possible, and a book in which he mentions surfing. So I just wondered. It, Melville as a figure. I mean, is it sort of localized to the Moby Dick and the Jungian? Yeah, yeah. But I, I just, I'm fascinated by him as a, as a writer and a, and a character. And he was so flawed. He was so flawed. You know, for me, it's not like hero worship of him as a person so much as as his work because, um, well, I won't go into it because you can find. I mean, people think right. that he was probably alcoholic and maybe bipolar and may have. Yeah beating his wife and all these things, but um, he was also a genius and he wasn't recognized and I find that, I find that tragic, you know, and, but the beautiful thing about it is that he never quit writing, like, even though he, so he wrote, he wrote like Typey and Marty and he was actually a really successful commercial writer of these like adventure stories and then he, and then he met um, Hawthorne who encouraged him to like let's take this up a notch. Let's get a little more philosophical and Melville being like semi-manic just like went over yeah. the top with it. And then Moby Dick essentially killed his career because it was so bizarre and people, I mean, it did get mixed reviews, but most people didn't know what to make of it. And he made like $600 off that book. Yeah. And then, um, uh, and then he, and then he went into this bad state and he wrote the novel Pierre which or, most or, the, or the ambiguities. Or the ambiguities, which yes. most people have, have not heard of or and definitely have not read. But it's like one of the most bizarre books ever written. And a Melville biographer named uh, Laurie Roberts, Robertson Laurent um, calls it, she described it as a narrative nervous breakdown because um, it is so bizarre. And it like was like the final nail in his coffin as, as a novelist. Um, but then he wrote poetry for the next, like, Two decades, and then at the end of his life, he wrote Billy Budd, 
yeah. which is, I think, one of the best novellas ever written. And, and um, so I, I think that I just, I so admire that, that he never gave up, you know, right. in the face of that kind of epic failure. Yeah, he worked in a, a customs house for 18 years. Right, yeah. right. Um, it's pretty astonishing. I, I, I think he and Hawthorne spent a night in a cave sheltering from the rain, and I think Hawthorne must have put some a microchip in his brain of some kind, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually his, his obituary said, you know, uh, author of Taipei and Omu and other South Sea tales. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah. It was until the 20s that there was like a real renaissance. Um, I think it was the 20s. Um, that his his spirit was really his literary spirit was revived. Yeah. Um, so okay. So you, you used Moby Dick to give yourself permission to put a lot of different things in here. And there's this this book. Uh, a great deal of it is traditional, straightforward, first person memoir. But there are other sections. Um, there's a section that's a dialogue between the L train and a female passenger talking about Justin Hawking. <laughs> And there, there's a section that is uh, a list of other writers who have sort of fallen under the spell of Moby Dick. And um, there are different you know, references to other people who've, who've um, fallen under that spell from Basquiat to Frank Stella and various anecdotes that don't seem primary to your experience that come in and, and inform, yeah. um, inform the book. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the, the composition process mm -hmm. and then the editing and organization process yeah, of this book. Sure. Well, I think it goes back to that kind of idea of braiding and, and um, I'm pretty enamored with the form of like the, the lyric essay um, and, uh, and poetry. Um, I, I love like a really well organized poetry collection um, where rather than just like um, spinning a linear um, story or narrative it's like a series of images and ideas and um, voices that um, accrue and resonate. Um, and I think that really good lyric essays do that same thing. And so I think that I was kind of trying to go for a little bit of that um, same idea. Um, I don't think my language is, I don't, it's not like particularly poetic, but hopefully it's lyric at its best. Um, and so I, I think I went totally overboard with the idea too that like I could, um, oh yeah, I'm just gonna like do this Melville thing and like chuck everything into the pot. And the first draft was 460 pages, and my agent w was like, I can't sell this. There's no way. It's and I was like, well, what about David Foster Wallace? You know, his page. He's like, You're not David Foster Wallace, and I can't sell this. Um, and uh, and so I I. It just did a lot of honing, and and I and I um, and I looked to Nick, people like Nick Flynn, um, who's a poet but also a memoirist, and Mary Carr, who are just so precise and so um, poetic, and can just like turn a phrase so beautifully and and with such economy, um, and just cut half the book, um, and and. It went through a lot of rounds of revision with and editing with my agent and my editor and then the publisher of the company. It's like multiple rounds for like over two years of this book needed a lot of work because it was a huge mess. Um, so, and I missed some of it, but mostly I'm mostly I'm glad that it like um, I think it's I think it's hopefully it's much tighter. Yeah, I think 
one of the most terrifying things about the the lyric form, especially when you're you're considering it um, for organizing a larger work, is that in order for it to be successful, you um, I think you as the author have to, to a certain degree, not understand all of its effects or even most of its effects. You have to take some of it on faith that that these things you're putting together from a, a gut point of view um, are going to be received in a way that um, sometimes is less specifically predictable than or less um, uh, concrete than say a straightforward narrative with yeah. reveals and yeah. things um, so it's a it's a it's a brave move you got to let go of the steering wheel a little bit yeah 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 and it's Love. easier I think it's easier in a lyric poem because that the you know it's like a page yeah but this is a whole book yeah yeah um, so something I thought about while I was reading this because you have not only sort of the narrative thing going, the nonfiction thing going, um, you also have some, to a certain degree, uh, interpret interpretation of your own life events going on, mm -hmm. analysis of your own life events, as anybody yeah. does in a memoir. And I think that's probably something that memoirists have to think about. How much am I going to interpret this stuff for yeah. the reader? I come from the fiction side of the fence, where traditionally we want to let the reader, you know, we try to not interpret stuff for the reader yeah. because they have to have this experience that they sort of co-create. Right. Um, how, do, how do you feel like, where do you feel like you stand on that line, sort of not wanting to just sort of be, you know, handing all this exegesis on a plate um, in terms of interpreting your own experience and, and just sort of putting things out there for the reader to do, to do, to do with on their own? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can... I feel like it's maybe I don't know if I can say how well I did with it. You know, I I, I hope I I think that I part of the reason I like creative nonfiction is that like I felt a little constrained by the fictional um, mandate to that everything must be in a scene. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, well, for for the most part, I mean, uh, well, there's narration, but 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 everything must be shown for the most part. I mean, oh, that everything must be in the form of a scene. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I hear you. I hate, and I hate that, scenes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Thinking about your um, your voice. Well, your book is really super voice driven. And yeah, I was trying to avoid any. Well, I mean, not uh, as a point, but. Um, I can't stand it when a novel stops to set up a scene huh. um, in a way that seems uh, too carpentry for me. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess I, I guess all I can say is that I, I like the creative nonfiction form because I feel like I can sort of like bounce back and forth between between that like rendering everything through through a scene or um, um, uh, through a gesture or, um, or dialogue and and also just sometimes needing to just come out right out and interpret you know and th this is what I was going through and this is what I was thinking something that I really enjoyed in this book uh, is the way that Justin used um, a number of times little bits of dialogue from other people in his life that he sort of let he let set them up and let them sit there and um, it provides a sort of even though it's been strategically inserted in there by him it does provide this sort of other perspective or an additional perspective on on what's going on is that was that sort of just an intuitive technique or is that something you've 
you, you considered in terms of like planting those lines? I was fortunate to have a lot of people read the book before, like early readers, and um, I had a couple people specifically tell me, like, um, speaking of interpreting, like you're doing a lot of interpreting of your like what's going on for you. I want to know what other people are thinking about. Oh, you. okay. So so people so, are, and they, yeah. yeah, and I don't know if they were in the specific spots that you pointed out, but um, but I did really intentionally try because I. You know, with a memoir, it can be, it can get so claustrophobic if it's just like in one person's head the whole time. Yeah, a novel can too. But um, so yeah, I, I think I really intentionally tried to like show myself through other people's eyes in a few spa in a few places. Um, I also like the way that you used Andy Kessler as a frame for this book. When he first shows up in New York, he goes and skates this bowl, and this great skater Andy Kessler says to him, "Welcome." Welcome to my town. Now, what does he say? Now get, get out of my town. Now get out of my town, and um, and he's sort of a, a touchstone through the book, and and the book ends um, after he's passed away from uh, anaphylactic shock from a, a wasp sting of all things, yeah. and um, I just only over the course of this conversation do I realize that I realize that there's a a sort of Ahab. He's not a very Ahabian character, but there's this sense of you know. Um, Somebody who, who who goes down at the end of the book, mm. um, an an Ahab frame to to mm. Andy's presence in the book. Yeah, yeah. Also, kind of an yeah, I think I described him as kind of an Ishmael character because I found out after he passed away that he was an orphan. Right. Sort yes. of. And so, and I Ishmael's like the archetypal orphan character. So yeah. And you are are an Ahab or an Ishmael? Uh -huh. Well, again, like we were talking about this upstairs. It, I, I feel sort of embarrassed because, like, I, I really tried to avoid, like, um, and I knew that I would potentially take some flack for, like, the idea that I was, like, like self-mythologizing or, like, self-aggrandizement. And, and I think this book is really, I hope that it's not self-aggrandizing. I think it's about me getting my ass handed to me by New York City. Um, but uh, I do I do really identify with, with the character of Ishmael. He's, like, this spiritual-seeking, um, disgruntled New Yorker who longs for the sea. Yeah. You know, and um, and uh, I, I really related with that when I lived there. And um, But I also, I think Ahab, especially in the end, Ahab sort of like, he, he he's like, um, he's like Al Swearengen from Deadwood or something, like where he, he has, he also has kind of like this, Melville's able to show multiple sides of him because he is a monomaniac, of course, but he also has capacity to like empathize with his crew at the very end. Um, when he like tries to spare um, a, a Starbucks life at the end, and there's kind of really beautiful um, moments at the end, and but just just the, the idea of the dark side that like, we all have this kind of like inner Ahab that's you know our resentments and our anger and and um, um, so I yeah I identify with them both, but I think I, I love Ishmael, I love I love um, I love just his language and this kind of soaring ideas, and so yeah. I, I look forward to uh, reading the part about him saving Starbucks um, someday when I finish Moby Dick. Yeah. Um, the so the the penultimate question here. Um, the this is a book about a guy who goes to New York with a specific goal in mind, returns with his tail between his legs, and having gone through a, a night sea journey, and you return with something. Sur this this surfing thing mm. it's this magical unexpected connection to nature that continues in your life today yeah. to be a major part of your life um, so 
in what ways would you say that the process of writing this, has the process of writing this book, did you have certain expectations and things, goals that you, you thought you were going to um, come out the other end with? And is there anything you're taking away from writing this book that is similar to the surfing, a surprise thing that you, mm. like, to, just to discover surfing yeah. in New York City? Like, is there a surprise thing that you, you came away with yeah, from it, the book? Yeah, it actually speaks to what um, you mentioned that you haven't finished Moby Dick. And <laughs> a really nice surprise that I didn't anticipate is that so many people that have um, been generous enough to give their time and read this book have told me that they, went, they then went and read Moby Dick which they had been avoiding or they never finished um, and so that that to me that's like all I could ever ask for you know like I that I love that idea and um, and um, on that note I think a lot of the, re the one reason that people don't finish the book and I don't begrudge anyone that doesn't want to read it I think that's it's just like it's it has a lot of baggage and it's not for everyone um, but uh, just on a logistical level the um, there's so many bad versions of the book that are really poorly typeset um, and really hard to read. Like Signet Classics, a lot of the, they're like two bucks, which is great, but they're really hard to read and the text is tiny. But the modern library version is the like the very best version, and it's illustrated by Rockwell Kent, um, copiously illustrated. It's almost like reading a, gra a graphic novel. Like every chapter has at least two illustrations, and they're really beautiful. Um, and um, I think that if anyone's interested, uh, that would be my advice is to, to pick up that copy and give it another shot because it's, it's a wild ride and it's worth it. So, yeah. I've got it in my pocket right now. <laughs> um, I'm actually <clears throat> not joking. I've got 11% of the way into Moby Dick nice. um, on, on some on not to be named app on my phone. <laughs> um, Okay, so final question before we take some questions from them. I just what do you? I just want to know what you're working on now. Um, uh, I'm I'm excited to work on some new things. Uh, I've been working on short stories for a long time, so I have a, I have a bunch in the hopper and and um, sort of I don't know that I'll ever actually publish a collection of short stories because it's really hard to do. Um, but. Uh, uh, I like to, th when I'm writing short stories, I like to think of them as a collection. It, I don't know, for whatever reason, it helps me move forward with them. Um, and then uh, I have a crazy idea for a novel. Um, I don't know if I can actually write a novel, but I'm going to hopefully give it a shot. And then I have another another memoir um, project that actually that will probably be what I work on first. So I would say don't worry about scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Just write it. Yeah. yeah. You can write a novel. If you've written this book, you can write a novel. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Um, let's see. Are there any questions? Yes. So I got assigned over Dick when I was a kid. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. I think it's a travesty because when you were a kid, you have no lack of experience yeah. in framework because you're just interpreting text. Yeah. I came back to it, interesting enough, how people came to Moby Dick through your book. Yeah. I came back to Moby Dick through reading Blood and Ridden. Oh, yeah. And just curious, how did you come upon Moby Dick as, was it as an adult or as a child? I'm, I'm going to repeat the question in case, yeah. for podcast purposes. Um, the, the question is um, uh, people get assigned Moby Dick when they're too young, and then uh, this gentleman came to it through Blood Meridian. How did you come to discover Moby Dick? I don't know when I first heard about it, but um, we read uh, Billy Budd in high school, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, and how I first, I, 
God, I don't know when I heard it. Or when I, I mean, I first came to it uh, in graduate school. But the really interesting thing about Billy Budd is that my father knew a guy who was in the film version who, like, does this swan dive off the, um, this, like, mast of a ship. And so when I was reading Billy Budd in high school, my father was like, oh, that's amazing. I know this guy that was in the movie. And so I kind of had, like, a little Melville spark there. You know, and then and then I I don't know how I just I didn't read it until although in graduate school before I actually read it, I heard a lot of people talking about like oh Billy Budd it's like this multi genre um, masterpiece you got to read you got to read it and then I finally was assigned it in like a in a literature class and that's that's where I first did it wasn't until I was like I mean I was like twenty twenty six or seven so yeah 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 nice excellent yeah. Uh, any other questions about Moby Dick, memoirs, yeah. anything? Not about Moby Dick. Okay. But about your process. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't read your book yet. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Vignettes? These are kind of like vignettes. Yeah, vignettes. Sure. Okay, so what I'd like to know is do you come up with maybe a list of them perhaps, just of ideas, and then you take one and then you throw yourself at it? And, and then and then start shaping it. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, my process really varies depending on what I'm working on, um, and what stage I'm in. So if I'm like in the um, sort of like uh, generative stage, it takes a lot of energy, and I can do it for like half an hour, an hour, a couple hours, and then I'm totally exhausted. Whereas if I'm in like the editing or the kind of compiling phase, I can do it for hours, like on a marathon. Um, but I think for me, and I don't know if it works for everyone else, but like writing longhand, um, that's where it usually like the vignette comes out, you know, and, and it's usually really, really messy. And um, uh, I do believe in that kind of like shitty first drafts thing, you know, it's like a way to get, it's a way to trick yourself to get out of your own way. Um, and, uh, and a lot of times a lot of powerful stuff will come out of that. And, and for me, it's often on the on a written page, like in my journal or something, longhand. And then I'll go back and put it in the computer and start. And then you start like fiddling around with it and moving and rearranging. So coming back to you that you maybe forgotten yeah. very facts or yeah. ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 How, how much of it is an invention? <clears throat> I mean, this is one of the things that I... Uh, oh, as a a fiction, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, as a fiction writer, you can just, you don't worry about it, but right. um, it, it's difficult sometimes, and you could probably feel that line as you write, um, especially at the fiddling stage or the starting to create a real draft, like, uh, this this might need a little more uh, scenery here, uh -huh. or, or some, yeah. you know. Well, especially with dialogue, I mean, no, yeah. unless you've recorded all your conversations, no one's going to remember dialogue that happened a decade ago. So there's a certain amount of embellishment that, that goes on there. And re, like I, I try to be really faithful to what happened. And I didn't say that I was in jail for five months when I was never in jail or anything like that. You could have been rich. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're... And we talked about scenes. You, you're, you know, you're recreating, you're recreating scenes and you're doing the best that you can. And, um, and, uh, but you know, you're and you're mem you're remembering things, and memory itself is a fiction-making process. The more you remember something, the less, the further away it gets from the, f from the, you know, concrete fact of what happened. I mean, they've s sort of proven that neuroscientifically, you know. But but I do. Um, so it's just a little embellishment, 
with 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 that real that effort to be faithful to to what happened. And do you let people who are in it read it? Uh, a couple. Yeah. A couple. Yeah. Um, a couple people that I was concerned that um, might feel exposed. Right. Um, and uh, but there are some specific people that I um, didn't want to read it to. So yeah. Uh, yes. Well, if you can indulge me to draw an analogy, this line that you said, I stand shivering on the sand, heart racing, not sure if I'm ready for hurricane, hurricane great surf. Uh -huh. It seems like that you stand in front of the obstacle and you enumerate that there's going to be a rocky bottom and the wave is too powerful and there's sharks in the water. Uh -huh. And then you proceed anyway. Uh -huh. And then as a writer, yeah. you put yourself in a position, you get mugged, and you get robbed, you get carjacked, and it's not bad enough to have a gun in your face. You've got your laptop uh -huh. in the car with the only copy of your script. Right. My question to you is, as a writer, do you enumerate all the things that can go wrong as a writer, yeah. should be rejected, and you proceed anyway. Yeah. And it's sort of like you, sub you take all the things that can go wrong, and you subtract all the things that actually happen, <laughs> and then you decide whether you had a good time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. Thank you. I mean, I think that that's... Uh, this is a hard any kind of writing it's just tremendously it's a hard it's a hard way to to make a living and but it's there's I, I wouldn't want to do anything else and the beauty of it for me and I'm a memoirist is that you can take all everything that happened and like turn it into something different and and I don't see it as like it wasn't therapeutic for me when I wrote this because it wasn't therapy for me would have been journaling about it a week after it happened. Whereas this was like seeing, like looking back at it and saying like, oh, there's this totally different context that gives this kind of a, a different kind of meaning that that um, that I really want to share with the world because I think it's kind of interesting and I think it has kind of an archetypal pattern that might be meaningful for other people as well. And so that, that, that ability to like turn a trauma into art um, is what I love about about writing in this process. So, yeah. Um, let's take one uh, last question in the back, I think. Oh, did, did you want to? You, you have a question? Oh, yeah. I was just wondering because revenge is kind of essential. Yeah. What we do. Yeah. And does your character carry that theme? The, the it's funny, you said character. Um, it's a memoir, so it's like character, but like slash narrator. You know, and I, I like to talk about it as the narrator, so I'm not just saying me. Um, but the narrator, um, uh, after having this traumatic experience um, and uh, dealing with a, like, a lot of regrets and uh, a lot of other th emotional things, um, the narrator uh, is sort of seeking revenge on himself. Um, and so the book is, in uh, a, a lot of ways, about him sort of letting go of that. Um, and moving past that, moving past that self-destructiveness. So, let's sneak that one last question in. Yeah, um, I wanted to know, getting back to the surfing, what is the difference between like West Coast surf? Uh -huh. Is there is there a specific? Oh yeah, I mean, there? because people have this idea in California, they think you know beach blanket bingo. Yeah. And 
endless summer, and uh-huh. it's, um, you know, beach boys, and it's wonderful. And then you go down to Imperial Beach, and you see that it's, it's very much, in many ways, very territorial yeah. and very thug. Absolutely. And you will take a punch to the face and take everybody else. Uh-huh. I'm kind of wondering if, you know, is it... Well, that's one thing I like about um, surfing in places like uh, Rockaway Beach or um, Oregon, is that um, there there's less of that. But it depends on where you go. I mean, I'm like intermediate at best. On my best day, I'm like a low intermediate, so I like just go to the, I stay out of people's way. Um, but there's some of that on the East Coast, that territorialism. There's some of that in Oregon um, at like um, uh, the... Um, seaside um, point. It's like the most territorialized, most localized break in the country maybe, where they, they'll do terrible things to your car if you go there. You know, so that's, that's something that I, you know, uh, Antoine was talking about, like this being in water with other people and there's this jockeying for position and it's like one of my least favorite things about it. Um, it, can, it can be fun too, so, you know, it gets yeah, like competitive. A, a little bit sometimes. Yeah, but, um, but uh, I found less, of, I, I think rock, a place like Rockway is more crowded now. It's, the secret's out of the bag. But the surf's just not that great, generally. So everyone's just kind of out, and that's something I read about, too. Everyone's just kind of out having a good time and goofing around, you know? It's like a beginner break for the most part. So, yeah. And, and, and yeah, there's less, and, and also Oregon, there's just less, way less people. So there's less pressure. So, and that's part of the reason I like those weird, out-of-the-way spaces, so. And yeah, and also what you said about certain spots being localized. There are so many different surf cultures yeah. within a place. Even yeah. in LA County, there are, you know, you can just name five different beaches that have five distinctly different cultures and vibes. Yeah. So or even this like today we were at Santa Monica and it was like depending on what what lifeguard station you're at, right. it's gonna be a completely different like scene. Tribes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It's kinda cool. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, you guys, Antoine, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. It was really fun. Thank you all for being here, and um, I just really appreciate your time. And it's great to see you out supporting. Uh, this beautiful bookstore, and thanks again to Noel and Jen. And, and, uh, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.